Welcome to De-Stress Your Business, the podcast where we show you how to get incredible results in your business without constant stress. I'm Alexis Kingsbury, a serial entrepreneur and founder at Air Manual. Now today we're diving into a topic that, let's be honest, many business leaders find challenging, and that's navigating the vast sea of data to pinpoint the insights that truly matter. But here's the good news. My guest today, Sam Knowles, has mastered the art of data storytelling, turning turning cold numbers into captivating narratives. Now, Sam is the author of the best-selling Using Data Better trilogy. He's renowned for his unique approach to blending data and narrative storytelling, making it actionable and human. And he believes, and I wholeheartedly agree, that the right questions can uncover the insights that you need to propel your business forward and effectively remove those stressful bottlenecks. So in our chat today, you're going to be discovering the transform, uh, transformative power of asking smarter questions. We'll dive into Sam's six golden rules of data storytelling. And I'll be asking Sam to share some real world examples that bring the power of data to life. So without further ado, let's dive in. Sam Knowles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Alexis. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Yes, me too. So Sam, uh, let's start off. Like, Tell me about you, your journey that led to you becoming a master of data storytelling and, and what sparked your passion for combining data with stories. So I started with story. So in uh, secondary school, um, I was badly taught, badly taught, perhaps with air quotes, um, uh, mathematics uh, and sciences. They were not my things. My things were languages and particularly dead languages, classical languages. So uh, for my A-levels at the end of or the middle of the 80s, I studied Latin and Greek and ancient history, went on to do a master's in classics originally and fell in love with story and storytelling and story structure, what we can learn about the way that... Um, powerful both law court speeches but also the dramatic forms of the day comedy and tragedy and epic poetry what they depend on and Aristotle a uh, Greek philosopher uh, lived, lived and worked most of his life in Athens uh, talks a lot in a very short very readable particularly in translation book called the uh, the poetics about the beginning the middle and the end the three act story structure he called it the thesis the antithesis and the synthesis. That's what he, that's the way he looked at it. And I think there's a huge amount that we can learn. And, you know, any box set that we watch, any novel that we read, um, any Barbie movie that we may go and see or Oppenheimer movie that we go and see current at the time of our recording, um, they are powerful and persuasive because they follow the rules of story and storytelling and story structure. Where things fall down is where they don't. With some glorious exemptions like David Lynch, but let's not get down a David Lynch uh, back avenue. So story, storytelling, I went out, I was the, my uh, college newsletter editor at university. I was always writing. Um, I had a couple of journalistic jobs before I went to university. Uh, and when I came out, I worked in communications agencies. Um, mm -hmm. And um, what I found perplexing working in communications agencies in the 90s was there seemed to be very little curiosity about um, psychology, human motivation, and behavior. What I thought we were there to do was to persuade people to do things they hadn't realized they wanted to do until they'd stumbled across our brand or campaign or whatever. Um, and so that part of that frustration went, uh, got me to go and see a vocational psychologist who mm -hmm. said that she thought, um, after doing the first of a round of, batch, uh, of psychometric tests that I'd ever really had, um, that I should study Psychology. I liked a psychologist telling me I should study psychology. Um, and I looked around and I thought, well, I'm prepared to go back to university. And already having a degree, uh, I 
quite soon discovered I could go and do a master's. I could go and do a master's. Uh, and I looked for three, I looked at the three best places to do a master's. One was Durham, one was Bristol, and one was Sussex. Um, Sussex happened to be four miles up the road from a little house I'd bought in Lewis, East Sussex at the time. Still live in that town, but in a very different house. Um, and so I applied. I applied to do this master's course, took, did the master's course, got on it, had to teach myself the first year's course. And imagine my surprise, delight, and terror having given up a well-paid job in a West End agency, moved out of London, never to be able to afford to return, to discover the first two new uh, two hours of my new life were a statistics lecture. My hmm. bowels filled with ice, I was terrified, but I had brilliant statistics teachers who taught me how to use data to answer questions. Um, and so along with English and Latin and Greek and Sanskrit and the other things I'd studied, I suddenly had this powerful new tool. I liked psychology very much. I liked what I got to learn about human motivation and behavior. Um, uh, and indeed have applied quite a lot of that in consultancy practice since in, in terms of building models of motivated behavior change. But when I came back out, data was getting big. I came back out in 2004 or five. Um, so face, the Facebook had been born. Twitter was about to come along. Um, and in communications agencies, I got a reputation for the, the guy who could look at the data. Many, many people in comms agencies still to this day, particularly PR agencies, will run a million miles from data, right? They, they really don't want to be there at all. So I, get, I became the data guy. And just under 10 years ago, um, I set up a small boutique, high value um, uh, consultancy, uh, Insight Agents to this day, coming up to its 10th birthday in December. Um, and we help all sorts of organizations make smarter use of data um, in the questions that they ask, in the insights that they, that they articulate using the data that they've surfaced, and then in the human and empathetic stories that they tell. Uh, in, in a shorter answer, I could say, I wouldn't start from here or I wouldn't do it my way around. I've learned a lot of principles um, that I found that many, many businesses, particularly big businesses, but also SMEs, um, find to be very helpful in navigating through the maelstrom and the smog. Nobody ever says, I haven't got enough data. What they mm. do, what they usually say is, I haven't got any insight into what the data might mean. Uh, and what they also say is, when our people open their mouths, they either don't use any data at all or they drown their audience in data. Can you help? And the answer is yes. It's actually relatively straightforward. Love that. I love that. And I, and I think the um, I, I love that split of, as you say, either people open their mouths and they're not using any data at all. And so what they've got is an opinion often loudly held or they share a lot of data and there's not a conclusion, a recommendation um, uh, or a decision to be made there. Right. It's it's just being shared and like, oh, isn't this interesting? And I think um, a lot of business leaders uh, as a result, feel that exasperation at, at that experience. Um, as a result of your incredible journey that you've you've had and, and building up this wealth of experience, you then authored a, a trilogy of books on smarter use of data. Um, why why three books? Like um, you know, most people barely get around to writing one. If they do write one, they're pretty surprised that they have, uh, and they may or may not look forward to doing more. Um, you, you've developed this trilogy. What was it that you felt like actually this needed to be to be broken out in this way? And and what's the the journey that 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 trilogy would would then take us on? Well, it wasn't the plan at the start, um, but, hmm. but you know, like all like all, like all good narratives, you can look back and, and justify it. You know, I can justify my being a data storyteller by being doing these degrees in classics and psychology. Um, 
uh, I found as well, uh, I did some work with um, a former client. We'd been head of comms at many uh, UK PLCs. Uh, he became a bit of a mentor and then, and then a coach. When he was training to be a coach, when he exited in his early 50s, um, he said, would you, would, you, would you mind if you were one of my guinea pigs as I, as I trained to be a coach? I said, I'd be delighted. We get to meet six times a year, talk for an hour about me. Yeah, I'd be absolutely fine. Thanks very much, Tim. Um, and one of the first things he did, uh, one of the first things he said to me was, if you want to be known as the person who, he was very, he was very, very directive as an early coach. He's now much less directive. But as an early coach, yeah. he said, if you want to be known as the person uh, for whom data storytelling is a thing, or one of the people, um, uh, if you want to be an authority in this area, you've got to write the book. And that was the end of our first coaching session. And that was in 2014. It took me a while, but I got, I got, a, I got a, a book coach. I've been threatening to write books for years and years and years about, oh, I don't know, comedy and all sorts of other things. My wife's got, probably got a list of all of the books I threatened to write. But I got a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, writing coach. Uh, she's a, a book whisperer. Um, she's she's uh, a marvellous woman called Beth, Dr. Beth Miller. She has a bookshelf in her house of books that she is the midwife of. And actually, it's now two shelves because she's, she's good. Um, and, and her advice was, if you're going to write, write. Uh, and that's about it. But, you know, it, it was a good one. So I determined that, that data storytelling was a thing. This was in 2018. It was published. I wrote it in 17. It was a thing I wanted to codify and set down some of the principles. I mean, you know, actually in a very different way, but not dissimilar to your approach, right? To your, your approach in running, in running Air Manual. I, I, I didn't say I had the only way of of um, telling stories with data, but I, I was frustrated by I was frustrated by the fact that people either do all or nothing, and that mm -hmm. trainers and trainers say we've had enough of data or it's all about it's all about the data. But I was also frustrated that people confuse data visualization for data storytelling. I was talking nice. uh, earlier on today to. Uh, very senior guy at Gartner, the consultancy, um, and we had a, we had a riotous agreement on the fact that um, if there's no point playing around with Power BI or Tableau or even Excel to try and find the story if you, if you don't actually know what the narrative is. So I wanted to set out some simple uh, principles that were not a statistics lecture. I've given statistics lectures and they have a particular place, but not in business for sure. Uh, and so I wrote the first book uh, and it did well and it won some awards and it got some uh, acclaim and it sold pretty well. And my publisher said, oh, what's the next one? Um, and actually I've been, I, uh, so I started a training practice and a, and a speaking practice. You'll be familiar with that, right? Um, I started training and speaking practice on data storytelling and still do a huge amount around that. Um, but I call my business insight agents because I think in particularly in the world of marketing services, particularly big agencies, the word insight is tossed about like confetti. And for me, insight is a prized and special thing. And I was interested in it from the perspective of um, the history, the philosophy, the psychology, and increasingly the neuroscience. So I thought, well, there's a book about insight. Insight agents, insight, this abstract thing. Agents get your nails down and dirty to actually surface the, these these things. I mean, I, I define insight in the book as how to be insightful as a profound and useful understanding. It's profound because it answers the so what questions, what do the data mean? And then it allows you to go on to the now what, what should we do as a result? So number two came out. Uh, it was a pandemic baby. Well, it was it was born in the pandemic, um, did did actually pretty well in the pandemic. Uh, and the publisher came around again and said, what's the next one going to be? And I really didn't have a clue. And I thought I might write something about purpose, 
Um, uh, and then I went on a on a webinar where um, the where publishers were saying the last thing we think is another another need is another book about purpose. So I felt a bit chastened on that. Um, and then I just kind of thought about it and realized that actually, if you don't know, if, if you want to get data to get insight. How do you get it? Well, you ask questions, whether you're interrogating a big data database, whether you're running a police prosecution, whatever it might be. Uh, and so I thought, well, the, this is going to be the one. And they they snapped it up. And and it's 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 I confess in the introduction that that I've written them in the wrong order, because my very small P philosophy is that if you want to make smart use of data as an individual in a team, as a, an organization, ask the right questions to surface the right data. Mm. Once you have that data, you're then able to build data-rich, data-driven insights, these profound understandings. And then it's important to apply humanity and empathy and respect the data tolerance of your audience um, uh, and use a judicious human amount of data in your communication. So that's how the three came about. And there will be no more business books. There may be, I mean, you know, there are online versions, there may be workbooks, but I think three is enough. Nice, nice. Well, I I, I won't uh, agree with that uh, too heavily because uh, I, I think your writing uh, style is excellent and the quality of your books is fantastic, as evidenced by the fantastic reviews and awards and so on. Um, so I'm, I'm sure there might be another one at some point. Uh, but yeah, you'll have to start another trilogy, I suspect, unless unless you're going to go on full on um, yeah Hollywood version of Tolkien and turn it into five and all this sort of thing. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, no, that's that's awesome. And it's I I think the one of the reasons why this is such a um, an area of interest for so many business leaders is because, I, and I, I think you're speaking to that um, sort of uh, dichotomy of you've got the the two ends of this spectrum. You've got the 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 promise of insight delivered through data and the overwhelm and analysis paralysis that it can cause. Um, given that, given that business leaders can often feel overwhelmed by it, like what are the most common mistakes that business leaders make when they're trying to get those insights from the data? I think there are three. Um, the first is um, accepting that data or casual observations or heaven forfend snapshots of dashboards are insights. Uh, mm. I, I'm just, I, I mean, that means they have too low bar a definition of what insight might be. Now, um, uh, I'll make two references to Daniel Kahneman uh, shortly, the Princeton psychologist. He, he, the favorite thing he's ever said to me, I'm a cat lover, I know uh, that cats feature in your life too. Um, he said that thinking is to humans as swimming is to cats. They can do it, but they prefer not to. Um, and thinking about abstract concepts like insight is hard. So I think having too low bar a definition of insight and accepting things that aren't insights as insights can take us can take businesses in a completely wrong direction. I think the second is a belief that evidence convinces, so that if we parade the scholarship, if we know a lot about something, we just need to tell people. And actually, Cognitive Psychology 101 tells us that that is what gets people to put up a wall. And then I think the, the, the third thing, uh, and this is to go back to Kahneman uh, and the work that he did alongside his long-term collaborator, Amos Tversky, that got them the Nobel Prize for Economics, but Behavioral Economics in 2002, is that we make our decisions irrationally and emotionally using the evolutionarily ancient parts of the brain that have no access to language, let alone data. Um, uh, we make our decisions 
quickly and emotionally. We justify them rationally using mm-hmm. the uniquely human um, cerebral cortices that surround our brain like crenellated bark. Um, uh, and if you don't balance the emotional and the rational, and probably in that order in your narrative, but you ha- don't have elements of both, then you're missing a trick. So I think those are the three fails. Yeah, and, and, and I can completely see how uh, those both individually and particularly if you compound them um, lead to that, that problem, right, of um, both the in, insight, inverted commas, that is um, delivered not really landing and that being frustrating, um, but also, um, yeah, not, not um, being able to really action um, what's being done. I think the um, as you say, like one of the keys is asking the right questions. And that, that's something that, you know, you emphasize in, in the book, asking smarter questions of which I, um, have a copy and, uh, uh, I'm very grateful for it. Um, but the, uh, in, in that book, you emphasize the importance of asking those great questions and how that can make a difference to kind of bring that to life. Are you able to perhaps share an example where a business has been transformed by simply refining the questions that they've asked and, and making them smarter? It's, I can, indeed. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's often not um, popular to talk about the tallest poppy, um, but I'm going to give the example of Tesco. And there was a time when they were not very much not the tallest poppy, when they lagged Sainsbury's in the 70s and into the 80s um, by some distance. I think there was a time when Sainsbury's was twice the size. Now Tesco accounts for one in every eight pounds spent in a supermarket. On, on the, or in fact, no, one in every eight pounds spent on the high street. I think you know, they, wow. they, they've got a, a, about, a third, I mean, you know, things fluctuate, but they became very big. And um, it, it coincided, um, uh, Dunhumby, when Dunhumby, the brilliant data customer data business, um, was founded, um, Don Humby had uh, Edwin Dunn uh, and a partner Clive Humby they, they had two meetings in the same week one was with Boots uh, and they went in and they said we've got this way of understanding customer data um, and we'd love to work with you to help you grow your company and they said it's all it's quite alright we've got the club card it's about to launch don't, or we've got the advantage card it's about to launch yeah. um, and then they went to go and see Tesco and Tesco said well we've just been asking ourselves how might we better understand our customers it, ter- it seems like you might be able to to help us um, look at the real behavior of our customers and reward that. I mean, that's the simple thing. It's hugely complex, right? But it's the simple thing that Tesco did. They looked at what their customers were spending and they gave them vouchers for the things that they were buying. So they they therefore bought more of them. And then they located the things that they were buying and uh, next to other things physically that they might also be interested in people you know it, it's like a it's like the analog f- physical version of amazon's people who like this also like mm, this yeah. and that's what they did they better understood their their customers and they became the number one supermarket by an absolute country mile um and you can see other examples i mean i, I, I know you have international um uh listeners clearly podcasts do um look at what target done you know there's there's the brackets apocryphal story about about target sending a sending um uh, a leaflet to a family uh, congratulating one of the family members on the pregnancy. Um, in fact, it was a teenage daughter, a 15-year-old daughter, um, congratulating on the pregnancy, and she might want, want to buy some folic acid and some get stock in some diapers. And the dad running, r- ripping this open, furiously running, going and saying, what on earth do you think you're doing? And then the daughter saying, yeah, I'm pregnant, because her buying signals were, were suggesting. Wow. So I think that 
big retailers, most notably Tesco in the UK and, uh, and particularly Target uh, in the States, but also Walmart and, and others have been very good at understanding behavior about, I mean, one of my universal principles, if I can be so not lofty, sort of just like tongue in cheek, but universal principles of asking smarter questions is this, is this being open-minded. It takes me back to being, being a classicist, uh, this position of, of the Socratic paradox, starting from the position, all that I know is that I know nothing. And if we don't bring our assumptions, our biases, our prior knowledge um, to the question that we want to understand, and we, you know, we've got our expertise, of course we have, but if we don't bring those biases and we don't bias what the outcome is going to be to the answer, and we just say, how might we better understand our customers' brackets and then go on to reward them for their behavior, well, you can have a transformational effect where Tesco go like that to that with Sainsbury's and do that sustainably. They're still by far the biggest retailer in, this, in the UK. Love that. And uh, I mean, to, to delve into that example um, a little more around the those refining of those questions, because as you say, some of the question was, um, how do we understand our customers more and reward their behavior? But of course, it'd be very easy to then capture a load of customer data and go, brilliant, I've now got every transaction of every customer across every store. Now what? Like, how, how do, what questions should than a business be asking to help them make sense of all that data? I think that very much depends on what the business is. And I don't wish to be to give you a, a fudgy answer, but I think... Um... Well, but we can take the retailer example, right, with loyalty, yeah, well, yeah, loyalty yeah. cards, because, um, uh, you know, for, for anyone listening as a business leader, imagine you're now running, you know, running Tesco or whatever, and imagine this is all pre, it's all been worked out, and you're literally presented with a spreadsheet of, of millions of transactions now what like what what would you right. actually do with that right. data what would so, be the questions so, to ask so 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 i mean the, the 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 questions are always on one level always the same and i'll give you another example from a different part of tesco i had nothing i i, I may be hoary and old but i had nothing to do with phasing out green shield stamps and introducing the club card tesco i was i was still at school then um no um uh, but no i mean the questions on one level are always the same which is make sure that when you ask a so what question you're prepared to ask them you're prepared to go on to ask, ask the now what question so you need you know with with as as um peter parker's uncle ben said in spider-man you know with great power comes great responsibility um we you must be prepared to say okay what do they mean what does this mean about what our customer how can we segment our our, our customers into 10 mm. 100 i don't know how many profiles okay when we've done that what are we going to do with that what are we going to do with that intelligence um i was i was given a challenge Year for 2010, I came back from um, holiday, and uh, one of my when I was work, when I before I was working for for, for myself in, in almost the last job I'll ever have, um, and I now realise I'm unemployable. Clearly, um, um, uh, well, we got an opportunity with Tesco. They want to, you know, it was it was just post the uh, Lehman Brothers recession, the, the subprime recession, um, financial crisis that then. Uh, everyone was parking their tanks on everybody else's lawn. The, the little and oldie were beginning to make inroads. Waitrose was launching its essential range, its essential cave age Gruyere. Of course, we all know that that is essential. Um, uh, and so they, they were parking tanks on one another's lawn. Um, and uh, Tesco had done an, had done a um, a big uh, made a big investment in its finest range at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and they'd run a competition. 
and some poor intern had had to manually type in um, what uh, the answers to two questions: What is your favourite? What is your favourite Tesco finest product, and why? Tiebreaker: thirty words maximum. And some poor intern had typed in thirty thousand of these. I, I, well, wow. Army of interns um, before any kind of AI at all. Um, and I went uh, and uh, and I went to go and see the food marketing director, and she said, "Look, we, we've got this. We want to do something with this. We don't know what we want to do with it, but can you make sense of this?" So mm. I then spent thirty six hours straight, and it was almost it was almost straight going through this. I mean, it was just it was an Excel spreadsheet. There was nothing particularly smart about either the analytical tools or the approach but i was looking to extract entities about what are the common it wasn't but what are, what are the common things that that make people like this uh like the these products and we and we did a linguistic and a frequency analysis and we and it wasn't very sophisticated but um, it led to an enormous campaign and we found that it was britishness freshness minimal distance from farm gate to store there were five qualities but those those three okay so uh, as a result of that they, so we first came back and said this is what this says and we believe that our now what because you are the tallest poppy because everyone likes to take a pop shot at you because everyone says oh it's bloody tesco um what you need to do is to tell the story of um uh the produce in your stores not saying tesco's got the best sprouts what we do is we tell the story of your producers and we make your producers the mm. heroes and that was an enormous award-winning campaign against across all 14 categories that they had, which has been copied and aped by many, many others since, <laughs> that you go in and you see uh, in Waitrose, the, farm the farmers, from. right? Mm. So, I mean, I'm not saying it was a, a massively original idea, but it was a data analytics problem, that, or that it was a data analytics challenge that led to some very chunky PR fees to tell for this agency to tell the story of Tesco's producers. And what that allowed, for example, BBC Radio 4's food programme was to go to the biggest sprout farmer in the UK at the beginning of December in Aberdeen and to talk for the five minutes. And about three minutes in, the vegetable buyer from Tesco was there to talk about their sprouts. Um, it was a I guess it was a kind of Trojan horse communication strategy, but that wouldn't have come without their willingness, one, to collect the data, two, to do something with the data, but three, to have always the intention to do something with that, to go from mm. so what to now what. Yeah, and it strikes me that in that, in that example, it's the fundamental insight was finding that, yeah, actually customers do care about that stuff as evidenced by the data and that it's those stories that are going to be relevant. Whereas if that hadn't really come out, instead it was, well, it's all down to taste and so on. Then to some extent, it's like, it doesn't matter. They're like, the customer doesn't care which farm it comes from the story and, and, and so on. Um, therefore that, yeah, anything in that. So that, I think that's really interesting. As you say, it's the, it's the now what, cause I think that's so what is so hard to, um, overcome because particularly when you're overwhelmed by a lot of data and you go, okay, you know, so what, what does it really tell us? And even it's an exercise that I've done in advance of collecting data where we say, oh, we ideally we'd have data on this, um, or we should compile this. And then you go, okay, but what would we actually do with it? Because a, if we're not going to do anything with it, it's not worth the effort, but B, um, it's not even legal to collect a lot of data <laughs> that you'd have no plans or clarity on what you're going to do with it. And so um, that's often a tricky uh, thing to overcome. So I think, as you say, the first thing is a mindset challenge of just shifting to uh, 
really pushing yourself to really think about the how are you going to use this data and um what will it what might it tell you that you can then start doing i suppose that that speaks to the whole point around the storytelling right it's it's looking at what are the stories we might get from this and then get the data and review it and see whether are those the stories that you get or does it um, come out it also strikes me that i think the temptation with big sets of data is to immediately jump into um, producing visualizations of it and analysis and pivot tables and pivot charts. And it strikes me that it sounds like one of the first things you did was actually skim reading through the data itself to see what's actually said. You know, no, no word clouds that are created and so on, actually reading the sorts of things that people are writing to then go, okay, now have I, have I understood this enough that I can now run analysis to say how many times is the farm mentioned oh actually not that many maybe i've just i just selected a few right and i can see how you can then kind of do that 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 journey um you, you mentioned about the kind of philosophy and um i know that you've kind of outlined your six golden rules of data storytelling and so on perhaps um if you give us uh, another example perhaps in different uh, different sector where um uh, perhaps a real world example of one or more of your your kind of golden rules uh, of data storytelling um, being applied it's a very small p philosophy but but but, but uh, and I'll, I'll always say that yeah i mean so so one of them is um is beware the curse of knowledge um the uh, kahneman's opposite number at harvard steve pinker um uh, has written a lovely book in 2014 called um, The Sense of Style, The Thinking Person's Guide to Writing in the 21st Century. And he has a whole chapter on the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge is the difficulty or the or the impossibility of imagining what it's like for somebody else not to know something yes. that you know, right? And it really is a curse. And when we get involved, when we do research, when we gather data on behalf of a team or a, a client, when we do that, we have much more knowledge than the person that's asked for it or the person that's commissioned mm. it. Um, and it's, it, and it, nothing is going to turn them off more if we take them through every single cross-tabulation and bit of analysis that we've done and found nothing, but there's one thing over here. Um, I'll give you an example from EasyJet. In 2016, EasyJet turned 20. I mean, who cares, really? Companies happen to be founded. Um, and they briefed their agency and said... Um, we're turning 20. And they didn't say, oh, yawn, yawn. They said, have you got any data? And they said, what do you mean? They said, um, have you got any data about your passengers? They said, well, we're, 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 uh, we're found, only founded in 1996. Um, uh, all airlines are required to keep all data about all passengers forever. So, of course, we've got data. They said, brilliant. Can we have it? And they said, sure. Um, and it was pre-GDPR. I can, I, 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 can, I can give you two reasons, well, two examples of why this was pre-GDPR um, to, to, tell you, to tell you this. Um, anyway, what they did was they crunched the data and they, and, they, and they, you know, they got the cumulative number of times they'd flown around the moon and or to the sun and back and all those kind of things, which were sort of quite interesting. But then they said, can we look at this? Can we look at this on an individual customer basis? They said, yes, of course you can. Okay. Um, and they basically created 12 and a half million in 23 languages for 27 markets across Europe, um, personalized, tailored emails that said, hi, Alexis, um, we've been flying together since for the past eight years. You, we've been on 12 adventures together. Your first was to Alicante. Uh, I'm making up your holiday history, by the way. Yeah. I don't know you that well. That's uh, all spot uh, on now, yeah. Yeah, good, 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 good. Um, uh, um, we've been 96,000 kilometers together. Um, 
where do you want to go next? I mean, there were more, but but what they did was they 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 didn't have the curse of the mass of knowledge about everything. They 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 had the sense to be able to look and to drill down um, and to create twelve and a half million individual tailored customer experiences from all of from all of this data. The campaign was incredibly successful. Um, I don't know what the, I can't remember what the headline was. Sadly, I don't have my own email, although I do remember it. I'll come back to that. Um, their email was open twice as often as usual, but across the demographics, they got 14x, 14 times the number of bookings in the next 28 days wow. for any comparable campaign they'd run five years out and, and for, the, for, the, for the next two years. Um, and it was because it built this personal relationship or it reinforced this personal relationship in something that had been seen as sort of brash and orange. And then it was Stelios and it was and it was a bit cheap and cheerful. But actually, by the time 2016, when this ran, EasyJet was the biggest flyer out of Gatwick. You know, it was it was it was the establishment. It was it mm. was it was BA to Heathrow. Um, but this 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 campaign, as I say, it was pre GDPR because my email said, um, well, the first bit was fine. What is it about seat seven C? You always seem to sit there. I mean, I can tell them that when they uh, certainly at the time when they drop the next set of flights, they start selling from row seven without charging you extra. So I would book into seat seven seat and I like the aisle. Um, but the other thing they said was it must have been a family trip to Athens in 2006 because never before or since have we carried 12 people with your surname Knowles on a flight. So it was 2016. It was pre-2018, right? They couldn't have done that afterwards. Um, but they were right. You know, they were right. Um so I think that that being aware of be, being wary of the curse of knowledge, not showing your workings out, you know, this isn't a maths exam, um, and talking in a very human way for yeah. an airline or the, the 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 CEO of the airline, or maybe, maybe, I think I think it was Carolyn McColl who now runs ITV at the time. Uh, I think it was it was it was from her, if I'm getting the dates right. Anyway, for an airline to have twelve and a half million individual dialogues is uh, human dialogues about one of the most important things in their life, mm. the holidays they go on, I think is a truly brilliant piece of data storytelling. Yeah, I love that. That's, oh, it's, it's so inspiring as well to, um, because I think partly because any business, like almost the bare minimum of data that you have is your interaction with your existing customers. Um, you know, even if it's only when they started working with you and what they've done recently and so on, most businesses will have that. And going further, you have what did they buy and how have they used it and all those sorts of things. And, um, and, and that's valuable information that you, um, can surface in interesting ways. But I think, as you say, you've got to um, appreciate that actually your customers don't know don't know some of those things and i think I, I really like that that point around the curse of knowledge because i think that's often really hard in marketing specifically because when you're particularly when you work in the marketing side you're essentially saying right i'm speaking to a load of people who haven't heard about us or don't know that we do this thing except that i know us inside and out and out and know that we do this thing and know that we've spoken about doing this thing a hundred different times in a thousand different ways and so I'm kind of fed up of doing it and I worry that other people are too. And yet the reality is they don't know. And in fact, um, I <laughs> share a, uh, an interesting insight I got uh, on a, a small amount of data today when I was running a workshop 
And at the end of the workshop uh, for our existing clients, um, I happened to mention, I said, oh, yeah, there's various resources that you can access. And one, one of which, of course, you know, um, uh, you probably already know, but you've got the De-Stress Your Business podcast. I said, actually, out of interest, we've got um, a reasonably large group of existing customers here. Can you just give me a raise of your hand if you've listened to one or more episode of the podcast? And uh, I would say it worked out as slightly less than 20%. No. And you go, wow. And the realization there was, oh, yeah, we don't at all <laughs> tell our customers <laughs> about our podcast and things like that. But not realizing, right, because we're cursed with the knowledge. We know it's there. We assume that people know about it. We know we know that most of my social media posts are about it. And yet, yeah, well, of course, we don't email our customers to tell them about the podcast. You know, it's ridiculous. And so I think that's um, that's really, really interesting. Um one of the other things that I um, that occurs to me there is when you share that story with with EasyJet is how you're talking about the connecting to that emotional side of it. You know that seems to be crucial. It's not just about the the data driven insights, but connecting to that that emotional side. Um, you know, can you talk through an perhaps an example of how does a company effectively make that blend uh, for a compelling? Um, narrative essentially um and perhaps an example um if 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 you've got it of perhaps more internal within an organization rather than as part of its marketing brilliant yes i can absolutely do that i'll give you two examples both um uh, well so so both don't feature the any data at all in the overt communication um one's a public health campaign and one's one's a one's for consumer goods but it but but it it lives in a different space the public health campaign is um a a campaign called this girl can run by sport england um an organization which realized in about 2013 that um uh, there was a serious gender exercise gap between boys age 14 to men age 70 and girls and women set the same of about 2 million now that has closed in part uh, in the last 10 years in in england and england actually across the uk thanks to the increase in popularity and credibility and investment in women's football but it's not only changed because of that mm-hmm. and it was and it was kick-started by this uh, by this um uh, this girl can campaign uh, they did a huge amount of work into the drags and drivers of participation in individual and team sports and um factoring out the football side of things uh, they found two delicious 85 percent so i love it when numbers pull in in, in opposite directions um of those who didn't take part in regular sport or exercise, 85% said that it was for fear of being judged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as somebody who took up running 12 years ago uh, and was considerably bigger at the time when I took up running, um, uh, uh, I know what they mean. It's why. I mean, it's, yeah. it's still the legacy why I run at okay. six in the morning, right? Um, uh, so I don't have to impose myself on my friends and family in my local town. Uh, occasionally I see them and they say, oh, God, it's nice to see you. Out. But, you know, actually, I, didn't, I, I understand that fear of being judged. But the other 85% is this is that um, uh, almost nobody noticed anybody else exercising, even under the pandemic. People didn't didn't notice it. Um, But of those that do notice it, uh, notice other people exercising, uh, another 85%, it was a big survey they did, um, say that's impressive, 
um, him or her doing that, her or him doing that. Um, that motivates me. I must do that. And people often wonder, why was there no legacy from 2012? Why did people not suddenly, you know, 2012 was an amazing Olympics, best Olympics ever held, best, you know, most incredible, everyone engaged. It was fantastic. Why didn't, why didn't people take up sport? Well, because Jessica Ellis-Hill is a fabulous ambassador uh, and, and a very aspirational figure, but so aspirational that she can do a heptathlon. Um, uh, we can't do heptathlons. We can, if we can haul our bones around a field, it's, it's hard enough. So real women really exercising was therefore um, the drumbeat of that campaign, which has helped to close the gender exercise gap. And it's, and it's driven by those 85% pulling in two directions. The other one is a long running campaign, Dove's campaign for real beauty, um, mm -hmm. where you leave it decided they were going to take on the beauty industry from within. Um, and they did a, a, some really interesting work, cross-cultural work in 20 markets, uh, where they, they asked women to, to say which words they would spontaneously use to describe themselves. Uh, and they found from Turkey to Russia to India to China to US, all around the world, uh, South Africa, they found that 2% routinely would use the word beautiful. And uh, they determined that uh, clearly the artificial, unobtainable, um, they're similar stories, but di different, different data, uh, artificial, unobtainable, size zero supermodels that dominated the fashion press advertising um, were not were the wrong way to go. Hence, their what they called their campaign was real types, not stereotypes. So real women advertising their products. You know, the the campaigners had some slips along along the way, some misguided elements along the way that are well documented. But um, that data driven insight that. Um, many women, the vast majority of women in the world would not use the word beautiful to describe themselves. Um, and we want to change that. And one way that we can change that is by changing the disrupting and changing the narrative um, of the beauty industry and fashion press advertising um, is what led to that campaign for real beauty and led to millions and millions, tens of millions of conversations between teens and tweens and, and elder relatives or role models um, and a reappraisal and, you know, look at fashion press advertising now, look at things like the Unstereotype Alliance that is a global a global initiative uh, that is, has changed mm. a lot of marketing, not all of it, but changed a lot of marketing. Um, uh, that was one of the seeds of the destruction coming from within. They, uh, you, Dove, the Dove team, uh, they were kind of like a, an agent provocateur or a spark inside a, a chain reaction. Um as I say, that there have been some missteps along the way, but I think that deserves praise because it, both of those blend emotion and rationality, I think, in a, in a very powerful way. And for me, they're data-driven stories. Yes, yeah, and, and indeed. And, and as you say, and yet neither of them then uses the data in the campaign, in the promotional, etc. It's just that that sits underneath it all at a, at a fundamental level, um, which is really interesting. Um, I think for, for other business leaders that um, the temptation is often to think, well, I've used data to come to this conclusion. Therefore, that's how I'll communicate it. It's going to be bar charts and pie charts and all these such things. And of course, it's fine for those things to exist under, under it. But actually, what's far more important is the narrative. And so the, the numbers should really just come in to support the narrative where that is um, and the you know but really you need to connect to the emotion behind it and what's actually being felt, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, shifting gears slightly then. So um, one of the things that 
uh, is a big focus for us on the on the de-stress your business podcast is how do you remo- remove the bottlenecks? How do you remove the causes of frustration and things that hold you back from scaling the business um, without, you know, or say having a massive increase in your workload and stress levels and all these things? Where can data help us there in in, in businesses that because there's a huge amount of data available in businesses, but most aren't using that routinely to help them identify the bottlenecks to their growth? I think they can, they, they must start from a kind of a wreckers perspective from a, not a Luddite's perspective, but they must break down silos and tear apart fiefdoms and, and share, share data and make it, make it, make it both available and usable. Um, I think they should definitely set a higher bar definition uh, of insight, as I say, it's not just me that's frustrated with it. I, I come across this in, in you know, be, because in agencies I've hung out with global multinationals in our small, currently three person, three support uh, business, uh, we find we, we work with we work with global multinationals because because the principals in the business have worked with global multinationals and and we still know people that work there and then you get recommended and you uh, um, but we also work with with with, with national uh, and local businesses too but um, I think there isn't it's kind of ironic you would expect the reason I mentioned global multinationals is that you'd expect them to have cracked both the data and the insight piece. And I think one of the reasons they haven't cracked the data piece is because a lot of them are legacy silo businesses. And so that marketing and sales and insight uh, and new product development uh, and then e-commerce and so on, so on, they operate in independent fiefdoms and they they want to take credit for success. Um, And so I think breaking down silos, banishing fiefdoms, um, accelerating empathy. And by that, I don't mean, I don't mean endless soft skills training um but i think understanding the role that empathy putting yourself into the mind the mindset the shoes of those who you're seeking to influence be they customers or Mm. internal stakeholders or regulators um and understanding what their data tolerance is likely to be um uh one of the exercises that it's my one of my favorite exercises I i train a lot of people in businesses i also train um, through the other side of our business, uh, it specialises in impact, but in specifically in academic impact. There is a, there's a there's a seven yearly review cycle in the UK, but also in many other markets too, where uh, government funding is assessed, and that is based in no small part on genuine real world um, impact. And training people in training academics, who Steve Pinker in his Sense of Style says that academics are the worst exhibitors of the curse of knowledge he he calls out his own his own sort as top of the pile um but one of the exercises i love doing is called pen portrait and we get people to draw a spidergram of in the middle of the spider in the middle of the spidergram they put the name of the audience that they're looking to influence somebody you know the conference audience the uh, the internal review committee the audience, whoever it doesn't matter who it is and then draw uh, and then in, in in sort of bubbles around to say to give defining qualities of what they're like and how likely they are to react to data some of those will be joined together more strongly and some will be weaker and then to use that spidergram which will take them 10 minutes to do i mean they could spend longer but you could do it in 10 minutes to write a 100 150 word pen portrait um of uh that audience and then print that out and stick it in their place of work and when they're writing a presentation an email um uh, a um uh, a sales pitch whatever it might be some marketing collateral linkedin posts for the next six months they bear that in mind 
They mm. look at it. They, it's always it's always there. Um, and I mean, I do this all the time. Every single um, conference, uh, every single uh, event that I'm going to uh, be involved in, kind of, what's, what's the data tolerance likely to be? Um, how much are they likely to be able to stomach? Um, and I think that's 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 you know, insight is not the same thing as empathy, but they. Oh, there's a lot of overlap. Being able to put yourself into the mind, the mindset, the shoes of those that you want to influence, to buy, to vote, whatever it might be. If you can do that, and I found the pen portrait exercise gets people to vocalise because hmm. we often don't do that. We think, oh, we got to we got to go and pitch for we got to go and pitch for um, I don't know an energy business. Okay, so is that energy business? Ovo Energy or BP. I mean, you know, they're different creatures. Are we talking to the finance and procurement team, or are we talking to the marketing and sales uh, team? Mm. And it's it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be you're going to be smoothing out the rough edges. Um, but I think it's an incredibly valuable exercise. I find it works best with academics because because they're so expert. In, and their data is very special yeah. and precious to them. Um, but it also works very, very, very well in business too. Fantastic. Love that. And, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's um, the uh, the ability to understand, I think it goes to two, two big parts of that. One was around, uh, as, you, as you just said, like um, uh, using the empathy and understanding who you're communicating to. And then that other point you made earlier around breaking down the silos and making sure that you're sharing across the organization to help understand that it's, it strikes me that we've talked a lot about insight and um in, indeed uh you know that's that's uh, part of your company name and indeed um uh, 13 years ago i think it was 14 years ago when i set up my uh, consulting practice before setting up my software businesses was bridging insight um with the aim of um, how do you break down those silos? How do you support the cross team working was our whole thing, right? Um, and it's interesting that even if when I look back over the journey of the last sort of 13 years, it's largely my businesses, three businesses, um, have been about how do you um, support better understanding of the knowledge and, and the sharing and, uh, and, and break through those wars. And I think um, that's often one of the challenges. And I think it's exasperated when you look at data specifically, right? Because it becomes, because I think a lot of people run off from data, it becomes even worse when you're then like, okay, there's marketing data and marketing are in charge of that set of data. And then there's finance data and only finance even have access to that data. And then there's sales and they've got there in the, like, and it's all separate and all like, and I think a lot of the examples that you've shared today show how you can take operational data, for example, in the case of EasyJet, and turn that into something that's really powerful in marketing, you know, and and, and similar with Tesco Club Card and so on. I think that's that's um, a really big insight for me is, is uh, that's the opportunity, right? Is that's the that's where to look, is where have you got data in other parts of the organization that could be utilized in, in others to really help you with the empathy and with the storytelling and so on. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sam. I mean, lastly, um, for our listeners who are keen to leverage their data more effectively, if you were to just give one like actionable step or takeaway that you recommend that they consider today, what would it be? Don't ask a so what question without being prepared to follow it up with the now what question. Um, uh, data can be incredibly powerful in the stories that you build, but I'm not just talking about I'm not just talking about um, marketing communications. Um, 
I'm talking uh, about clearly about marketing communications. I'm also talking about finance, procurement, and uh, and, and uh, sales, and I'm also talking about innovation insights. So those are three fairly chunky areas where um, where data storytelling can have a profound impact. But if you're not prepared to do something to change your behavior or to accelerate an existing behavior or to, 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 to do something that you used to do, but if you're not prepared to to use what you find to do something different, don't bother. Mm, love that. Thank you. Sam, thanks so much for joining me. I'll be sharing a variety of links in the show notes, including links to uh, your website on Insight Agents and also to uh, your three books, Narrative by Numbers, How to Be Insightful and Asking Smarter Questions. Uh, How else can people connect uh, with you and learn from you, Sam? Uh, I'm spending a lot of time these days uh, on LinkedIn. I'm, I, I'm spending much less time on Twitter X, but much, a lot of time on LinkedIn and finding that to be very useful uh, and very helpful and a great place to start interesting dialogues on this topic. Um, I'm very, very findable on LinkedIn. Uh, I am Sam Knowles, Data Story. Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you. I encourage people to go and find Sam and uh, connect. Uh, Thank you very much, Sam. Uh, And for those listening, like if you're thinking, oh, this is amazing and I can totally see how if I could understand and review my data and uncover the insights, it would have a huge impact but I just don't have the time, then you need to learn how to free up a significant amount of time from the day to day for this. And uh, to help with this, I'm giving you uh, free access to a recording of a masterclass that I ran on how to free up 15 hours per week and remove the constant stress of running a business without slowing down growth. And typically people that attend that session and apply what they've learned, uh, save literally say 15 hours a week, uh, within a uh, within a couple of weeks of of, of implementing it, so it's it's pretty uh, phenomenal and can free you up a lot to do a lot of insight uh, work. Uh, you can find out more and access it at airmanual.co forward slash webinar. Uh, but otherwise, that wraps up another uh, data uh, uh, fueled episode <laughs> this time of de stress your business. Massive thank you to my special guest Sam Knowles for sharing such valuable insights into the world of data storytelling and the art of asking the right questions. Um, It's clear that with the answers that we um, uh, seek, uh, the the growth that we aim for um, often uh, lies hidden within asking the right question. And as always, uh, the right narrative can transform data into uh, actionable insights rather than just a pile of stuff to wade through. So for all our listeners, remember to check out Sam's uh, uh, trilogy on using data better. The links are in the show notes. Um, but uh, otherwise, hopefully you can uh, you found this episode uh, helpful and insightful. And if so, we'd love to hear from you. Share your key takeaways on social media, tag us in. Uh, ultimately, your feedback helps us to always look to improve this podcast and uh, make it as good as we can for you. Uh, otherwise, uh, lastly, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. We've got some more amazing guests lined up with practical strategies to help you de-stress your business. Otherwise, Sam, thank you so much. And everyone else, until next time. Have fun.